0: Scripture reading this evening will come from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because of all sin. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many." Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many transgressions and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus? Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's God's Word. You may be seated.
1: Thank you. Thank you. uh, First, uh, of all for uh, your your kind comments on uh, our study of Romans so far uh, I've 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 been blessed by by listening to our teachers and uh, blessed by by my own study and uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the second part of what um, Paul is doing in the fifth chapter of Romans a very very important chapter in Romans and I'd like for us to begin with a word of prayer while I put my binoculars on so that we can uh, we can get into this text and, and study it and press our mind into it. Father, we are grateful, again, to, to come together today and to sing and to pray and to be with each other and to fellowship and to encourage and to share each other's burdens and and so fulfill the law of Christ. And to do it in such a way, Father, that not only are You glorified, but, but we taste a bit of that glory that is, is part of the hope that we have in this life because we have been justified because You are righteous and will make us righteous through Christ. Father, I pray with all my heart that these words that Paul uses, while we understand them as words and understand them as definitions, that they go much deeper into us. And that we fully understand what it is that, that Paul is driving at when he uses words like like justification and, and righteousness and grace and gospel. Thank you for this book and thank you for this opportunity to 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 think deeply about these passages, Father. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's 1984 and Ellen and I, during uh, summer break in, in graduate school, uh, had already made the commitment that we wanted to be missionaries. We weren't quite sure where we wanted to be missionaries, but out of an entire world, we had kind of narrowed it down to the southern cone of Africa. And so the summer of 1984, we spent a a summer doing research through the southern cone of of the, the continent of Africa, primarily in the Republic of South Africa and the newly formed country of Zimbabwe. And while we were on the eastern part of Zimbabwe, we were right there at a town called Mutari, which was on the border of the Zimbabwe-Mozambique border, uh, we had an opportunity to see a a childhood family friend of of Ellen's family from their years as missionaries in in Rhodesia. And we spent a a little bit of time out at their their, their farm. They, They raised macadamia nuts, and it was way out in the middle of nowhere. It was way out in the middle of the bush. And their main road was a one-lane road. And when I say one lane, I don't mean one lane going each direction. I mean it's one lane, about as wide as this aisle. And when you're driving down that road, you can see, because it's flat, you can see people way off. And when they're coming, the rule is, and you do it on faith, that you will get half off the road, and they will get half off the road, and you'll pass each other at 90 miles an hour and keep on going. Now, I'm an American driving on the right side of the road but there I'm driving on the left side of the road so you can imagine the temptation to get to the right side of the road which he's getting on the right side of the road well it did make for a couple of moments of faith those folk that we visited and had such a great time with decided uh, uh, about uh, a year or so later after Ellen and I had left graduate school in Abilene and moved to San Diego that they wanted to come and and to visit us in the United States uh uh, the the uh, the mother and her son came and and spent uh, about two weeks with us in San Diego and and one day we are driving from San Diego to um, to to Anaheim where Disneyland is located and as we're driving up there we're on these you know now you remember these are folks that are living in the middle of nowhere they can't they stand on top of their house they can't see anybody they can't even see villages they're that remote and the only road going to their house is that one lane road. And so we're driving up to, uh, to Disneyland and the, the kid in the back seat is just mesmerized by the fact that in San Diego you had these eight-lane highways. and And all of these overpasses and all of these flyovers and everywhere you went, there were cars and everywhere you went, there were exits and more roads and more roads and more roads. And at one point, he says, how do you know where you're going? And I said, well... It depends on which road you're on. And it was kind of a smart aleck answer, but it was the truth. If you know the road you're on, then you know where you're going to end up. The same is true spiritually speaking. The atoms determine your destination. That's one of the points that Paul is going to make in Romans chapter 5. The atoms determine your destination. Now, there is a reason for this text that begins in verse 12 and goes to verse 21. Now you'll remember that as we, as we kind of review very, very quickly what Paul has been doing in Romans, the first couple of chapters of Romans, he has been dealing with the fact that the gospel is great. And the gospel has been revealed, but there's another thing that's been revealed too, and that is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is being revealed against people who understand and know that they, they possess a knowledge, a, some degree, some measure of the knowledge of God, but they suppress it, they stand on it, they push it back. They don't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, they exchange that truth about the reality and the existence of God for a lie. Well, in that world, not everybody would, would say that the depraved mind fit their, their life or fit their lifestyle. There were others in the Roman world that would say, yes, we agree. There's a lot of depravity in the world, but that's not us. So Paul in the second chapter says, even if you think that you're a moral person, your laws, because you can't even keep your own law. And, 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 and what laws you do have, you can't even keep perfectly. And then there were those that were saying, well, okay, we're not the moralizer. We're not the guy that's saying I'm better than the guy down the street. Therefore, God accepts me. I'm not the guy that's exchanging the truth of God for a lie and, and filling my life full of idols. I have the Word of God. And he says, nope, the same is true. You know because you teach people not to steal. You steal yourself. You tell people, you teach people, do not commit adultery, but you commit adultery. And he goes down the list. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, one of the first high points of the book, he says, all people have sinned. That's the problem. They fall short the glory of God. Chapter 4, he begins to talk about the importance of faith and trusting God, and, and uses Abraham as an example. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, he is talking about the fact that God is righteous. Not only is that a description, doing right in a righteous way, the core value of God's existence, but also He is righteous in the sense that He does what it takes to make sure that the covenant is, is, is made, that the covenant is secure. And one of the things that we discovered in, in Romans chapter 4 is that, is that God, because He is righteous, is going to do not only His side, but our side in making sure that that covenant stays intact. He is just, sin is punished on the cross, and He is the justifier. And as we saw this morning, justification is the way that God sees us because of what, God, because of what Christ has done. Now, in the middle of, of all of that, He says, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, because we are justified, we have peace with God. We have friendship with God. It makes us a people of hope for an eternity that is different from the life that we live now. It makes us the objects of God's love. It's pretty stupendous claims that Paul has made. Now, you know as well as I do that there's always in every crowd, in every audience, there's a skeptic. There's a skeptic in every audience who says, really, how can that be? Seriously, all of this is undone at the cross and the the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's all undone. How can that be? How can one man, in other words, change the universe? And Paul says it's so. And Paul draws his readers' imaginations to two individuals in the Bible. The first Adam and the second Adam. Now, again, hate to beat a dead horse, but remember the nature of the Gospel. The Gospel, as, as it is presented to us is bad news that that sets us up to hear the good news. The, the good news of forgiveness and salvation and love and of reconciliation with God. And after spending all of this time talking about the greatness of what it means to be justified, for God to see us in light of what Christ has done, He goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and to the first Adam. And He says, think for a moment about that particular day, that particular hour, that particular moment in the history of the world where we find the history of sin. The history of sin is also the history of the power of sin. The power of sin is pervasive. The power of sin is polluting. It corrupts everything. Paul is going to say, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. The, the last word, because all sinned, goes back in the original langu- language to a very special tense. It's called an aorist tent, which means it is punctiliar or it looks to a specific point in time. It goes back to a point in time. And what Paul is trying to say is that all of the sin of the world that, is, that, that the world has ever experienced can be traced back to a single moment. It goes back to when Adam did not trust God enough to obey God. That the knowledge he had of God as the Creator and as the Father and as, as, as the one God who created everything and, and created Adam himself that he was walking through the garden and spending time with, that he had a personal relationship with, that God whose Word was powerful enough to create the universe in his own mind was not a Word powerful enough to trust. And so Adam did not trust that God had the perfect will and the best intentions for man in giving him instructions on how to live. And Adam, the original man, blurred the distinctions between the Creator and the creature and sought to become God and disobeyed the rule of God or the will of God. And Paul says in that event, the history of sin can be seen in three stages. Number one, sin entered the world through one man. There was a moment in history where there was no sin, and then in the next moment, sin has entered into the world. Number two, death entered the world because of sin. Not only did that disobedience cause this this, uh, cataclysmic change in the nature of the world, but it ushered in death. Death was not natural. Death was not a part of the original creation. Death is the stranger. Death is the enemy. Death is the result of disobedience and sin. Death entered the world because of sin. Third stage, death spread to all humans because all humans sin. Now, in some language that's a bit difficult to wade through, Paul says that this was true from Adam to Moses before there was a law. And he says this was true from Moses onward even after the law was was delivered. Now, what is he driving at there? And and seriously, how can this be? Well, um, over the past 100 years, people have developed some pretty bad eating habits. Lots of sugar, lots of poorly processed meats, yellow food color number two, Krispy Kreme donuts, margarine, sodas, and the like and people paid the price paid a dear price with obesity and heart disease the the signs that this was wrong was all over the place as people's health were being affected and death was being sped up and then all of a sudden All of a sudden, we have all of these food groups and and more knowledge about nutrition than we have ever had. I mean, real knowledge about how different kinds of herbs and foods and greens and and superfoods and blueberries and all of these kinds of things actually stem back all kinds of diseases. We have knowledge about these foods and what the bad foods do to us. And yet, everybody here tonight, that looks really delicious, doesn't it? We have all of this knowledge and yet we still eat them. And we are as unhealthy as ever. The point that, that, that Paul is making is that everyone sins. Whether they had the law of Moses or not because they can't even keep their own ideas of morality perfectly. And on top of that, everyone has had a knowledge of God that they choose to act on in one way or another. Either to chase that God down or to exchange that God for another God, a God with a little g. And Paul says the proof that that's true is that death is everywhere. My mom and dad, I've told you the story before, my dad are, and mom and dad are driving through the hill country uh, some years ago after they retired from D.C. and moved to Fredericksburg to uh, to retire and they built their house and joined the countryside. And just out in the middle of the blue as they're driving through this this wonderful countryside, my dad goes, do you know what the mortality rate of Fredericksburg, Texas is? You know, she go, she starts laughing. She says, that's really morbid, but I don't have a clue. And my dad goes, 100%. Percent. And it's True. The proof is that death reigns. In verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Paul is saying, if you think about the history of the world, it goes down to a single act. One man decided that he would disobey God. One man decided that he would not trust God and sin entered into the world. And with that death, and with that, just like pollution, just like uh, j- just like pollution corrupts everything that it touches and, and, and corrupts everything that it touches, death spread because all people sin. And so when we drop down to verse 18, he says, Consequently, one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. And so it gets dark all over again. One person ushered in sin, sin ushered in death, and because all people sin, everybody dies. But then Paul goes into a transition and it begins with that great word, but. He paints it black once again, but then things change on a dime. The direction changes on a dime. It's about the power of the gift. Power of the gift in verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more? How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many? You know, sometimes uh, you read a passage all your life, and then all of a sudden it hits you like it, you've never seen it before. It hits you like it's never hit you before, and you just want to stop and you just want to think about it. Paul says the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is not like the trespass. I mean that 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 those those uh, those eight words are words to meditate on this entire week. The history of the world is a history of misery. The history of the world is a history of misery that we have failed to overcome, regardless of how hard we try. We can find cures, but we can't stop disease. The primitive world or the rustic world was thought to be superseded by the world of conveniences, and yet the world of conveniences has brought its own uh, its own version of the misery and the ruin. You have anxieties, you have stresses. We can obliterate each other with more efficiency in greater numbers and from greater distances. That's the history of the power of sin. But the gift is not like the trespass. So he says in verse 17, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant Provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness. What's the next word? Reign. And the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that the whole universe changed by one man at the very beginning. The universe changed. The universe was created by the with the Hebrew word tov as a descriptor. As a modifier, it's good. It's good. It's very good. It's tov. It is the representation. It, it, it has become what was, what was represented in the mind of God. It has become a reality. It is good. It fits everything. His Word is powerful. And He created out of nothing everything that we know. And it's good. And the first Adam, though, brought sin and a spreading, marauding death. One atom changed the universe. The second atom, which is Christ, brings an all-powerful, overcoming, death-swallowing gift of life where sin and death do not have the last word. And the universe is changed again. In the first atom is death. In the second atom, Christ is the life that, that death cannot defeat. And that's why Paul writes at the very end of that chapter where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Remember the story of, of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. We, we think of the story and, and, and we, we think of heroic actions, and, and, and it is. It's a very heroic bo- uh, story in, in the Old Testament. The armies of Israel are facing a dreaded enemy, the Philistines, and their champion, the giant Goliath, who is over nine feet tall. Goliath is the champion, he is the hero of the Philistines, he's the one that represents the entire Philistine population. On Israel's side, they have a king, and he's the tallest man in their, their, their land, and he is Saul. He represents Israel, but the king is afraid and can't fight the fight. Saul is facing a fight. He knows he cannot win. And the army becomes demoralized, and even though they go out in the beginning of every day in the morning, first thing they do is to form up the ranks. It's kind, of, it's, kind of, it's kind of an unbelievable scene when you think about it. In that part of Israel, uh, you know, it's a hilly country. The Philistines have their chariots. The, um, the, 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 the Israelites uh, do not. And those chariots run a lot better down there on that flat ground. And that's where they are. The Israelites know this and they know that uh, that they can't fight against those chariots like that. And so they get up on the hills and if those chariots begin to come towards them, they're going to run boulders down on top of them. So they're at a stand, a, a stalemate, a standstill. And, but every morning they get up, even though they're demoralized and nobody is doing anything and Goliath is coming out and defying the God of Israel and, and insulting the people of God. The army of God gets up and they go up to the top of the hill and they form their ranks and they give the war shout and then they go back to their tents and they have breakfast. The army is demoralized. And David shows up, and he's this young kid, and he does an audacious thing. One, one that you would not expect, one that is least likely as a candidate, one that you don't think of as, 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 as powerful and strong and, 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 and experienced as, as a warrior, one with wisdom. He's the one that goes out and fights Goliath, and he's the one that wins. Well, we think that that story has to do with teaching us to be brave in light of our giants and going out to fight them. You know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. you got to go out there and be like David. The problem, and that's, and that's okay. But the problem is, you know, as long as we're not facing a giant, we're encouraged to go out and slay our giants. But if we're facing a giant that terrifies us and immobilizes us, and even in some cases has caused us to drop in the fetal position, we have no hope of winning. And that can be depressing. The point of the story is other, I think. We need a champion to win the battle that we can't win on our own. And in the David and Goliath story, the hero comes from an unlikely place, the country. And he's weak, can't even put on a man's armor, doesn't fit in a man's armor. He's just a boy. And not just a boy, but a, but a shepherd on top of that. But he is the one in weakness that goes forth and defeats the enemy. And the armies of Israel are energized and encouraged to go forth and to be the people of God and to be the army of Israel. Not because of what they did, but because of what He did and by what He achieved. That changed the day. We can't help but look at Jesus on that cross And in those, those magnificent words that Everett read for us this morning from Isaiah chapter 53, this is not one that there was something great about his appearance that when he walked by us, we would stare at him. He was weak in the sense that he was able to be mocked and he was able to be slapped and he was able to be insulted and spat upon. He was able to be beaten down. He was was taken in front of, of, of His own people and they chose someone other than Him. And in His weakness, He was launched up onto a cross and at the apex of human meanness and brutality and cruelty, He died. But in that death, Last thing he says, it is finished. Finished the mission. He finished the work. He paid the price for our sins. The only man to have ever lived a perfect life, the only man to have ever, to ever have fulfilled the law of Moses. Every I dotted, every T crossed, filled every aspect of it. And in His death, He paid the price for our sins. And in His resurrection was the proof that He had defeated the greatest enemy that was ever launched into the world by the sin of man, and that is death. And Paul says, when you think about Adam, Adam... Adam didn't know what he was doing. Adam, Adam, when he chose not to trust God, when Adam chose not to obey God, when the first Adam decided that he wanted to be like God, rather than he blurred those distinctions between Creator and Creature, he ushered in death and sin and all of the the, 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 the tangents and the radii that come from that. But the other Adam, the first fruit of the resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth the first, when he died and was buried and was resurrection, he changed the universe forever and ever and shook the cosmos. Not just the earth but the cosmos. And it's in his and it's in his weakness and it's in his victory that we see our hero who defeats sin and death. Uh, Paul is, is going to answer another question that's going to come up in chapter 6 and we're going to talk about that next Sunday morning on, on Easter Sunday about sin and about the death, burial, and resurrection and how we participate that in baptism. And that is that is our act of faith when we recognize what it is that Christ has accomplished for us. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now. And some of our shepherds are going to come down here to the front. Maybe there are some things in your life that you haven't gotten straight. And the only thing that maybe you have gotten straight is you know that those things keep coming and going and coming and going in your life. It's the same cycle. It's the same cycle. And regardless of how you try, you don't seem to avoid it. You don't seem to evade it. And you just know that there's there's just something that's wrong. What the Christ offers is for you to fill that peace with God. To come out from under that feeling of condemnation, the feeling of guilt. What Christ offers is a friendship to be reestablished with God through Him. What Christ offers is a way to live your life in this life right now with these promises in light of what's coming in eternity to be changed completely in every instance of life in everything that you, every adverse, every great, every low moment in your life to, to approach it differently in hope. And every day to experience the love of God. If there is someone here tonight that would like to experience that, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front to talk to you about how that can happen. And for the rest of us, we're going to praise God for the greatness of the second Adam and what he has wrought in his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's stand and sing together.